Welcome to the Places Where We Go podcast. Hello, I'm Julie. And I'm Art. We're the hosts of the Places Where We Go podcast. Join us as we share our travel stories. We'll tell you about where we've been, what we saw, and what we did. We're always looking for a bit of an adventure. Sometimes we travel far. Sometimes we explore the places in our own local backyard. Wherever we go, we'll let you know about the highlights and top tips to help you plan your future adventures. This is the Places Where We Go podcast. Welcome to episode six of the Places Where We Go podcast. Today, we're going to take you on a trip with us to a location that we visited during our trip to Cardiff, Wales, a short bit outside the city center called St. Foggins National History Museum. We went there to kind of soak up a day of Welsh history. And I don't know about you, but Mm. my idea was that it was going to be just a big building with lots of artifacts, and it was very different. The way I remember this even making the itinerary, I think this was one of the places that I was looking through TripAdvisor for what are the top rated places in Cardiff. And this was actually the number one place in Cardiff at the time that we went. So being the most popular place, I thought I'll put it on the list. I think I just saw the name of it, the National Museum. And so I had the same assumption there was just going to be a building with artifacts inside. I didn't read the actual description that is on TripAdvisor. Yeah, the usual reviews and things like that. You just kind of thought, well, it's one of those well-traveled places, and let's let's go ahead and go to it. Yeah, so I saw that, and the other thing that I kept my eye open for is how long should we plan to be there, and I think the suggested duration for visiting was in the neighborhood of two to three hours. So I think the day that we planned this, I'm pretty sure I had on the itinerary that we were gonna do this in the morning. I thought there would be some time in the afternoon for some other stuff in the village. Basically, you know, we, this, this was the thing for the day and um, we we're kind of ready to soak up something about Wales. Okay, so what is the St. Foggins National History Museum and Castle, by the way? It is a place where it shows how the people of Wales lived and they worked and spent all their leisure time back in time, basically. You're stepping back in time. Mm -hmm. Um, You made a really good analogy of it that I really liked. Do you remember Mm. what that was? This place struck me as what I called a historical zoo. I had in my mind a place like the San Diego Zoo, which, which is this immense outside space and at the zoo you're seeing a bunch of animals this was also an immense outside space but you were seeing historical buildings and examples of welsh history all in an outside setting versus an inside typical museum it is the world's largest open-air museum and it is the most visited attraction just outside of cardiff So this museum was established in 1948, so it's been around a while. They've got at least 40 buildings on premises. There's a few that are recreations, but most of them are the original buildings that existed throughout history, throughout the country of Wales. And one of the things that was cool to learn is for them to build this museum, they actually took these old buildings, took them apart, and then you know brought the materials back to this site outside of Cardiff, yeah. And like I don't and know, it's like Legos. Rebuild it. So yeah. I mean, that's a painstaking process. Yeah. Because they, you know, as an archaeologist, you are literally having to label each 
tiny individual piece mm-hmm. and put it together, you know, map it out and put it back together exactly how you found it. Yeah. And then for us being able to visit a place like this, you know, spending a few hours walking on the grounds, you get a chance to see what Wales was like hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. You get to see different elements of Welsh life from farms to churches to storefronts. Yeah. Uh, you know, little markets, bakeries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so there was, there was a whole lot of different ways of life yep. that were found there at different times during their mm-hmm. history, too. It wasn't all at the same uh, century. Yeah, so super cool place. So if Very you think cool. you're going to this museum to look at stuff on a wall and stuff inside a building, you're in for a big surprise because this is a totally different type of experience. And we were pretty amazed at when we first walked in because we, we came into the museum and came to a front desk. And then after that, we thought, well, this isn't going to take very long because no. we didn't know that it was an outdoor museum. Yeah, because somebody didn't read the description on TripAdvisor of what this place actually was. Well, that's okay because it was a nice surprise. Oh, it was a fantastic surprise. Yeah. yeah, I remember, yeah, we walked into the building. It was two stories. And the bottom floor was the ticket area. There was a gift shop. And I think off to the side was a cafeteria. So there there was nothing to see that was a museum-like downstairs. So I remember thinking, oh my gosh, all, we came out all this way. And all that there is, is whatever's going to be on the second story. We're going to be- Which seemed at, very tiny. Yeah, we're going to be out of here in 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to have all the rest of the day to explore. Yeah. But then I had seen, or one of us had seen some people downstairs going through some doors outside. I think we wandered a little bit. We found the cafe, and then we kind of were like, is this it? Where are we supposed to go? And then we saw people going out. Yeah, and these, that, these glass doors. Yeah, at that point I was thinking, there's nothing to see here, anyways. Let's take a quick peek outside and just, you know, maybe there's something cool outside because yeah, then and lo inside, and behold, yeah, and and you, yeah, you open up the doors, and it was kind of like for me, you know, almost think about for another analogy when you watch The Wizard of Oz and you go from oh. the black and white scene to the color scene. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it, 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 it was that kind of experience for me. You know, you open up the doors and then it was this, oh my gosh look what is outside because that's where the museum is yeah. it's it's this hundred acres outside of just this immense landscape of history and now you have to make a decision of which way do you go yeah they own a hundred plus acres mm-hmm. so it is a huge amount of land and the buildings are spread out on this land i mean it's very walkable i mean yep. it's, it's not like you have to bring your hiking shoes but do bring comfortable shoes. Yeah, and it's also set up in such a way where you don't necessarily have to go in a specific path. You can kind of zigzag your way right. through this however you want. And, we, and there is a map. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the map was like, what, 50 pence or something? It was pretty it was cheap. really cheap. Yeah. So I think that would have been helpful to mm-hmm. have. Yeah, we didn't buy the map. We didn't buy the map. We just kind of wandered around and mm-hmm. looked at signs mm-hmm. and, and that worked for us. But you can get a map also. Yeah. When you go, make sure you... Um, or if you go, make sure that you take a look at some events that might be happening at the time that you want to go there because they have all kinds of events that happen. They have craftsmen that will actually show you things like baking the bread or grinding the wheat. Or I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen there. So you can make sure that you look for an event schedule before you go. Yeah, so that'll help you plan your trip and just make sure that if there's something happening that day, 
you can make a decision if you want to take an hour or two out and see somebody you know, doing something cool that's going to be happening that day. If there isn't anything cool happening that day, you still have an enormous amount of historical stuff to occupy your time with during yeah. your visit. And if you have young kids, they have playgrounds. Mm -hmm. I saw lots of kids on the playgrounds. There was lots of young children there. There is also, uh, for a little bit older children, there is what they call the coded lands, high ropes that ends in a zip line. And there is a 10 pound fee, a cost to get on that. Um, there is height and weight limits, but uh, no. if you have older kids. So I, I couldn't go on the great. zip line? I think you could. I think you could have actually. Ah, aha. But, you know, we decided we had other things to yeah, do. Yeah, it looked more like a zip line for kids, though. There's lots um, of kids yeah. on it. So before we dive into some of the, the highlights that struck us when we were at the museum, we want to back up a bit and talk about how to get there from Cardiff City Center, which is probably, I think, where most people who are visiting are going to be staying at because this is a bit what, outside 15, of... 15, 20 minutes bus? 20 to 25 on, on the bus. Okay. I think I got the options for getting there from the museum website, probably. And so there were several different bus options. There was also a train option. We ended up selecting to take bus 32A because that's a bus that you could take from the Cardiff City Center and it actually drops you off in the parking lot of the museum. So that was the most that's direct perfect. way yeah, to get there. Our issue was because we're not familiar with Cardiff, we weren't familiar with the bus system in the city. In fact, I think this might have been the first bus that we took in the city center itself. I believe you're right. Not being familiar with that, we had to figure out where does one get bus 32A. I came across something that noted it was fairly close to Cardiff Castle. So when you're in Cardiff City Center, again, we've talked about this before, you can't miss where the castle is. So we, we walked toward that area, and then we basically just kept our eyes open for where's bus 32A. Yeah, we were, just, we were walking, and there's the entrance of the castle there's a main street. So we were just walking up that street and we pass a bus stop and kind of look. And But then you actually spotted a 32A bus Yeah, so we, that we knew, was making a turn yep. onto Westgate Street. Yeah, so we knew we were close. Yeah. So we walked down Westgate Street and went by, I think, one of the bus signs and we were hanging out there hoping that well, bus... No, we actually were watching that bus and yeah. it actually made a stop at that bus stop. So we thought, okay, we're, we'll be able mm, to pick mm -hmm, it up mm -hmm. at this bus stop. And we must have looked a little confused. Well, we looked very and confused. And we were kind of talking back and forth and like, you know, are, are we sure this is the bus stop? And as we experienced a lot in Wales, one of the locals said, do you need some help? And we... You uh, think? <laughs> he told us um, that we had, we were in the wrong stop and that we had to go down the street and across the street mm -hmm. a little bit further mm -hmm to catch the 32A bus. Yeah, so we, we were close. We just needed a little help getting exactly where we needed to be. But again, if, if you're in the city center, go down Westgate Street, which is perpendicular to the castle and you'll get 32A over there. One thing also want to mention about the bus though, we learned this throughout the whole trip, was in some cases you need to have exact change on the bus. So I don't know if you remember, this is yeah. the time where the only English money that we happened to have that day were the notes. So I think I had like the smallest thing I had was a 10 pound note, which is going to be way too much for 
the bus fare and I didn't want to part with 10 pounds if the bus fare was going to be less. Right, because they'll just take it and yeah. they don't get anything back. So I thought, hey, okay, so but before we you know jump on the bus, let's jump into a store and see if we can get change for, oh, for the 10-pound note. Mm-hmm. And remember, I think we walked first into a coffee shop or something. Mm-hmm. Can you get can we get change? And the, the short answer was no, no. not today. And then we went to the next place. Yep. And hey, no. can we get some change? No. No. <laughs> no. We couldn't. We asked and got denied. A couple of times. Yeah. But then we actually went in, and I don't even remember what the store was, but I remember going it was in. A, it was a convenience store. It was a convenience store. Yeah. And I remember going in, and he said no initially. And then he kind of, we were walking out and he stopped us and he oh, says, I know. do you mind Cause, the cause, pounds? No, because no, I actually, yeah, I was asking initially for, can we, can you split the 10 pound note into two five pound notes? Oh, that's right. Yeah. And five pounds is, it seems very hard to come by. Or, or, or for whatever reason, they, they didn't want to do that. But yeah, so this guy, he first said, no, I'm not going to, I can't split the 10 and give yeah. you two five pound notes. But, they but said, he said he would give us 10 one pound. One pound coins, mm-hmm. which actually turned out to be probably the, the best way to that's go perfect. anyway. So yeah. we said, you know, super. <laughs> we made the exchange and now we were ready to go on the bus. So if you're... Traveling from outside of the UK and you're like us and you basically are trying to do everything on credit cards and if you can't use the credit card on the bus, do your planning to have your change for right. be it the bus or any kind of other transportation mm-hmm. in advance. So with correct change in hand, we knew where to get the bus. 32A came around and we jumped on and we were off to the museum. And we, it was, like you said, it was about... 20, 25 minutes to get there. Yeah, by the time we got there, I was glad we made the decision to get public transportation because sometimes we make the decision to do long walks and that would have been a mistake. That would have been a mistake. The bus dropped us off right in front Mm -hmm. of the museum. It was perfect. Yeah. So we're at the museum. We've given you a little bit of preview of what this place is like. So why don't we talk about some of the highlights? Well, I don't know if we mentioned, but you get to the museum, the entrance fee, there is none. Oh, it's yeah. Free. Yeah. So that, so yeah, not only is this the number one attraction in Cardiff, but if you're on a budget, you can't do any better than, than free. There's no entrance fee. So that's, that was yeah. a super high selling the, point. If you want to donate, you definitely can. Yeah, they'll take I mean, your money. they'll take your donation, but the entrance is free. I mean, they asked us if we wanted a map for 50 pence and that was about it. Yeah, I don't know why we said no I don't because know why. yeah, we, we, it cost us nothing to get in. Yeah. When you think about what you experience at this place relative to what it costs, which is nothing, oh my gosh! I mean, if you're in Cardiff, do not miss this place. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Also, if you happen to rent a car and you're going to be doing driving there, mm. just know that there is a parking fee of five pounds. Okay, no driving for us though. No, we no. did not drive, so no. we didn't have to worry about that. All right. Want to hit some highlights about what caught your eye? And I have a couple of things that impressed me. Let's do that. St. Telio's Church was one of the things that was the bright spot for me. And I think it's because it was, the walls were finished, they were whitewashed, Mm -hmm. and they had murals on the walls. There was a lot to look at. It was colorful. They had um, things that I recognized because it was a church that was brought back to a time before the Reformation, and it was small, it had an altar, it was so beautiful to me. I really enjoyed that 
part of the exhibit. And it had come from West Glamorgan, which is also where my family history comes from. Yeah, you had so that was kind of cool. Too. Yeah, you had made a comment there. I've got in my notes that there was adjacent to the church a farmhouse. And when you were talking to me about why the church struck you, there was something around the like adjacent to the the church that you said that this is probably how your family, the Raglans, probably lived. Right. Because there was the church and there were some some structures like right adjacent. So that church being from that vicinity where my ancestors Mm -hmm. were from too, I like to use my imagination and I I could imagine, you know, my ancestors, maybe some of them being a part of this church before the Reformation. I know after the Reformation, there was a big connection to another part of England that we'll talk about in future Mm. podcasts. This church was rebuilt and they redecorated it to appear the way they thought it would have appeared in 1530. So that's kind of the recreation that you're seeing. We saw so many things. The the place on the grounds that, for whatever reason, impressed me the most or left the biggest impression were these Iron Age roundhouses. Mm. And um, I think they were called the, I'm going to get this totally wrong, but the Bryn Error Iron Age roundhouses. So we were walking and we came across these and they almost look like yurts, yurts to me, yeah, right? That's so what our impressions were. Yeah, so this round structure that probably made something totally different and in, in my mind it was probably like like an adobe-ish type of It was right? because they had on the side of the yurt examples of how to make adobe bricks. Yeah, and so thatch roof on this place, a right. you know, very a, a large roundhouse. And so this is one of the places that's on the grounds that is not an original structure. They recreated this as they thought a roundhouse like this would have looked like 2,000 years ago. There are remnants of these types of places from archaeological digs that have been helpful to historians to understand what the structures would have looked like and to help rebuild them. So they did rebuild it. And... I don't know if this came up in a discussion with the docent that was inside the premise when we went there, but I know what it was. He was talking about some of the metalwork that was inside. Because it was the Iron Era. Yeah, and he made mention that some of these iron elements, and they might have been like the things around the fireplace or... It was items they used to place their cooking utensils, yeah. their cooking pots, things over an open fire. And if somebody had something like this, this would have been a sign of wealth back in the day. And so very uncommon for anybody to have metal work things around the cooking fire. And so you know, I, I walked away with this impression that this is how the top 1% would have lived 2,000 years ago. If you lived in one of these roundhouses and you had the metal work stuff for cooking, I mean, you were at the top of the social totem pole. And it was also a replica of something they had actually found in an archaeological site. So they made it look exactly like that. They actually have the original pieces in yeah, some museum that, somewhere. And you're talking about the metalwork. The metalwork. Yeah. So when we were inside, again, I mentioned, you know, the, the structure had a thatch roof. And the docent was telling us that not only was there a thatch roof on the structure, but as you look inside, he said, hey, you'll notice there's no windows anywhere or no, like, opening. So. Yeah, so Nothing. all of the smoke would rise up into the thatch roof, and he said that that would do a couple of things. One is it would keep insects away, and it would also keep birds away from nesting, nesting in the thatch. Or, or even destroying the thatch for their own nesting material. This was by far the oldest type of item that was on the ground, and for you know, for whatever reason, it kind of struck me as, as one of the coolest things that we saw. Yeah, The docent actually had a fire going at the time we yep. were in there. 
And it was interesting to see that the smoke was just dispersed around the whole roundhouse, but you didn't feel like you were choking on smoke. It was an interesting example of what it might have been like living in one of these roundhouses. Mm-hmm. Well, I was interested also in some of the stuff I had read that had some of these events that happened at this National Museum throughout the years. There's been festivals, there's been old Welsh dancing, there's all kinds of things that happen there. And they do have craftsmen that show you how to do things that, you know, in the old times, you Mm -hmm. know, farming and using the farming tools back then and what that might have been like. But these craftsmen also speak Welsh. So you're able to hear the Welsh Mm. language there too. And we actually had an experience with that when we went into one of the farmhouse. Yeah, so we walked into one of these old homes and we're kind of looking around and you and I were having a conversation and the docent that was in there overheard us. And I think he might have asked us like where we were from because I think our lack of a UK aspect to our conversation. Well, you know, we have a very American accent yes we do that does exist well no we, we don't have an accent we just we no we, to them it's an no, accent no we speak normal and everybody else has an accent oh i see yes okay so he struck up a conversation with us and i think in part he mentioned that he had visited the los angeles area just four months prior to when we were in wales so we had a little back and forth about you know where we lived and his visit but what was neat is that he, he really opened up and you know started talking to us about the country of Wales and he turned out to be this great ambassador for the country of Wales yeah. just a man who was very proud of his country he offered us a lot of recommendations on you know places to see in Wales I think the number one thing that we walked away with was his recommendation for Snowdonia right so which is where he's from when and if we ever go back that right now is like the number one place on my list of things that i'd like to see more of in wales is to get to that place because we didn't hear about it only from him but other people since have mentioned snowdonia as well he also talked to us about this welsh pride and over the years a movement for you know trying to get independence for wales and i didn't know this Mm -hmm. apparently there still is a movement today Mm -hmm. where there's some individuals Mm -hmm. who would desire to have Wales be a sovereign, independent nation. And he mentioned that he himself participated in a march not too long ago. It was a neat encounter because you know, we, we spent a little bit of time talking to him. And it was probably one of the most, I guess, longest conversations we had with a Welsh person about their country. And he just had so much to share. And one of the things he did share was his language mm-hmm. because he had asked us if we had heard the Welsh language and we said, well, we're not sure because some of the British accents can be very thick. So you really have to turn your ear to try to hear what's being said. And we weren't sure if sometimes if it was Welsh or Gaelic or also maybe. Yeah. yeah. So it it was an unknown for us. So he says, well, let me give you an example. And he went and he spoke a little bit in Welsh, which was really cool. That was very cool. You know, the thing that I walked away with from that experience is when you're at this museum, so many of the places that you'll walk into will have docents stationed inside. It would be, in my mind, a mistake not to engage the docents in a conversation. I totally Cause, agree. Yeah, because yep. because you're gonna you're gonna learn things that otherwise you're just not gonna get an understanding of what it is that you're seeing. They're gonna offer a perspective that's gonna enhance your visit. So talk to the people when you're there. 
there's just an, an immense amount of things to see when you're walking on, on the grounds. And again, I think I mentioned there's like at least 40 structures, so we're, we're not going to even attempt to go through all 40 of them. But among the types of things that you're going to see there, there was one area, I think it was kind of in the middle of the grounds, there was these row houses. And so there was like six of these row houses in a row. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. I guess that's why they call them row houses. <laughs> They were furnished, each one of them, I think, you know, spanning about a 100-year period. So the first one you'd walk into, and it showed you how it would have looked in 1880. And then you'd go into the next one, and it might have been you know, 20 years mm -hmm. later what it would have looked like. All the way up to the last one, it was decorated to what it might have looked like in 1960. And I think the last one might have had a black and white TV as yeah, an example. It, yeah. so it was on, actually. Too. When you walk through these, that also gave you a chance to see in these types of living structures what the insides would have looked like all the way from 1880 up until now and then you can see how things progressed and how things changed so so that was neat to see there was also some places that we saw when we were there where there was basically one building structure and there was two rooms one room would have been where the family stayed and in that room is where they slept it's where they ate it's where you know cooked. where they cooked and so basically everything that the family would have done and adjacent to their room was a second room, and that's where the cattle the, would have been. The cattle, because the winters were harsh. Yeah. So the cattle would have to have an indoor place to stay. And a lot of the farmers during that era didn't have the money to build a barn. So that's, they'd build a structure that would house both them and their animals. One example for me, when I think about the things that people complain about today, because everybody whines about yeah. you know, stupid things, you put yourself back in the shoes of living several hundred years ago and what life would have been like if all you had was one room with a dirt floor and everything that you did was in this one room and 15 feet away from you was the cow, <laughs> you know? Yeah, sometimes multiple. And they probably were thankful for what they had. Yes. And when our Wi-Fi goes down, we get all twisted. And <laughs> There was those types of structures as examples. Aside from... These different buildings, though, the, the other thing that the 100 acres that the museum is situated on accommodates is wildlife. Mm -hmm. and, and one example of that is birds. And so you have a lot of bird activity in the area. There's a very wooded area where you have a lot of wildlife, especially birds. You can hear them, you know, as you're walking around, sometimes see them. And I'm sure there's other, mm -hmm. lots of other animals mm -hmm. in the area. I'm sure there's deer. I'm sure there's some kind of wild cats. I'm sure that all exists there. Maybe not within those grounds, maybe on the outskirts of it, but because uh, there's a lot of people that walk this area, so the animals are going to want to stay away. But the birds have a very interesting little area that yeah. we had walked into. Yeah, so, so we, we had stumbled across a structure that they called a bird hide. Basically, this structure that you as a visitor can walk into, and just outside the structure is a bird feeder, that happened to be empty when we walked oh, in. There was a couple of bird feeders and they were both empty. Yeah, so that was unfortunate for us. But I think by the time we got to this part of the museum, it was later in the day. Mm -hmm. They had pictures of the types of birds that you would see there when, when they do come to feed. And so different robins, different wrens, all kinds of different types of birds. So, you know, you do have a chance to see some wildlife there. You've got bats in the area. Oh, sure. And my notes say rare animals. So I don't know what a rare animal is. I don't know what that would be. But I take that just as a sign that there is wildlife in the area. Yeah, yeah. Part of the St. Fagan's National 
museum is the St. Fagan's Castle and the gardens yeah, that that's surround probably, it. Yeah, probably the, the cornerstone attraction, I think, on the grounds. Huh? Yeah, it's not really a castle. It's actually Elizabethan mansion. And it was uh, has an interesting history to it. It mm-hmm. had several owners. The last one was the Earl of Plymouth, who had just married and was going to live in this castle. They had it refurbished, and this was in the 20th century. Mm. Then he had an early death, and his wife moved out of the castle. But his son, the second Earl of Plymouth, inherited the property. And he was the one that actually granted it to the um, Historical Mm. Society Mm -hmm. of Wales. Yeah, so what's neat is the castle, or as you you mentioned, the, the mansion or the manor house, it is open so you can go inside and see parts of it. You you don't see, at least when we were there, we didn't see the entire structure, but we got a sense of some of the rooms and, you know. There was a couple of rooms, a sitting room with a beautiful fireplace, and we saw the kitchen. So it was just a really short little walk through a bottom portion of the castle. You didn't go upstairs at all, Mm -hmm. and then back out to the same way you came in. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that we saw this structure during the visit, but as we were walking towards it, and even after we exited, I think the thing that probably struck me even more than than the castle were the gardens. Gardens were beautiful. Unbelievable. Yeah. So serene, so quiet. Even with people there, I mean, it just had this peacefulness about it. Yeah. And lots of water features and flowers everywhere yeah. and so, birds. and. Yeah, so we were there late July. Yeah. I was just looking the other day at, at some of the photos that we took there. The amount of flowers that were in bloom and the variety was just incredible. So this whole experience is, would be a great place to bring your camera. And if you enjoy taking photographs of foliage, you're going to have so many options for photography. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you own a macro lens, this is probably a great place to bring one of those. I don't have one of those yet, so down, down the road. But lots of photography options. As you walk toward the castle area, you're going to be walking through the various gardens. When you exit the castle, there was a pretty immense, kind of like a structured garden. I don't know what you would call it. A structured garden? Well, it kind of had a little maze-like feel to mm-hmm, it. So mm-hmm. it was sectioned off. It had the fountain in the middle. And you just walk through these pathways. You could actually, I mean, nothing was so tall you couldn't see, yeah. you know, across the whole thing. But... You did kind of wander through these pathways, and it was just very peaceful. Yeah. It was very nice. As the grounds of the museum have these buildings that would have been through through time in Wales, that's also um, kind of like a theme, if you would, that they included in the garden. So the gardens actually have heirloom breeds of crops that would have been likely used by inhabitants during the various times that basically when when you witness the things that we saw. Yeah, there was a greenhouse. We never actually went in that. You've got fish ponds there, fountains, vines, pretty impressive rose garden. If you enjoy gardens, I mean, you're going to... It was beautiful. Yeah, really enjoy what these grounds have to offer. The recommended time, we said, was three hours, and I had read that even on the website, but we ended up being there for five and a half hours. Five and a half hours, and even in that time, there were still a few things that we didn't see. see. And we didn't even, like as you mentioned when we started talking, that the museum does offer on many days demonstrations of craftsmen doing things. If you were to include one of those things, I mean, this is an entire day visit. Entire day, So Easy. 
I can't imagine doing this thing like in two hours. There would be, unless you just kind of walked really quickly through things and just gave a cursory glances. Well, which is not our style. So, no, I mean, you know. we like to take time to soak up the things that we're looking at. As I mentioned, if you go into some of these places and you have a conversation with a docent, you know, time is going to fly and you're going to learn a lot of stuff. The other thing that's on the ground that we didn't talk about, other than we alluded to it briefly at the beginning of the conversation, was when we were done touring the grounds and we were back in the building, on the second floor, there actually is kind of a museum-y type of thing. Yes, right, right. Take your time, and, and that probably was maybe, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. Yeah, it was. it was one room, and it was an expansive room. It kind of solidified everything that we had just seen. That was a place where they were able to show some things that wouldn't have worked as well in the outside environment. So right. there, there was like musical instruments as an example mm-hmm. through the ages. So we saw some of those. There was this vintage trailer yeah. that we had that seen. Was cool. We're currently in the, in the hunt for a trailer. So, <laughs> so we got trailer on the brain yeah. big time. But it was one of these very old style vintage trailers. And it also just strikes me as interesting because... In our travels in Europe, and I'm sure maybe there's more of this out there, but we don't often see trailers and RV type of vehicles to the same extent that we do in the United yeah. States. So, so when roads are different, yeah, space smaller. is different. They they don't have huge parking areas. Yeah. And- so I know they exist, but this was a really cool, probably like a 1950s, 40s mm-hmm. era mm-hmm. type of trailer. Mm-hmm. So that, that that was neat to see. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. So like you mentioned. Five and a half hours went by quickly. So this is definitely an entire day excursion. It's kind of, you know, wrapping up about this. I mean, to me, this kind of struck me as a, it's a cultural experience. It was kind of like a folk kind of experience is, is one of the ways that, that I would have, I guess, that, that, that I interpreted it. The other thing that struck me about this place, so anymore when we go to museums, Places seem to use a lot more technology anymore. So, you know, you go into places and they got your multimedia experiences or you got your thing, you're watching the video or you, you're putting on the headsets and you're getting the audio tour. When we went through this place, there was no media of mm-hmm. any kind. Mm-hmm. And it, it struck me that that was the, the right way to experience a place like this because by not having technology, it puts you back in the time that you were walking through. So when you're walking through the 1500s church or the 1600s farmhouse, you didn't have that technology distraction. Yeah, and it's also, it was an, it was outdoors in a wooded area. And if you had something plugged into your ears, you would miss that experience. Yeah. Do you have any fun facts? I do have some fun facts. They're, they're, they're interesting facts to me. So... As we mentioned, when we got to this place, for whatever reason, is when I think about a museum, I'm always thinking about a building with stuff on a wall and stuff on a table. And I was really surprised when we got to this museum and and found this open air experience. After we visited, you know, I I had, you know, went online just to see, you know, was this kind of a rare thing? And, um, you know, come to find that, you know, the museum concept of an open air museum isn't as uncommon as as I thought. Mm -hmm. So I think when I was looking at open air museums, even in the United States, I think we have over 100 of these, not like St. Fagans. Not to the extent of St. Fagans. Right. But but open air museums, there's also dozens in Europe 
One of the things that I had noted, though, is this particular museum was apparently modeled after an idea that originated in Sweden. So as somebody that also has some Swedish That's roots, right. Julie. That's right. You I might be, have a castle over there, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of, course, of course you do. <laughs> in the early 20th century, there was a place there called Skansen, which is an outdoor museum that similarly highlights Swedish architecture, and it's... Uh, either in or near Stockholm. The thing that I noted was when they built the museum in Sweden, that that one apparently was relatively easier for them to build. So they did the same kind of thing where they took buildings and structures throughout Sweden and, and relocated them on the grounds of their museum. Their structures, though, were primarily built out of wood. So wood oh. was a lot easier to take apart and then rebuild versus what we saw at the museum in Wales. You had much of it that was built from masonry or, or, or basically, yeah, stone, mm -hmm. not wooden type of structure. So it was noted that making this concept in Wales was a lot more difficult. Again, when I'm thinking about the open air museum concept, it just dawned on me that about a mile and a half from where we live, so in the, we live in the city of Simi Valley in California, there's a place called Strathern Park, mm -hmm. which it, to me is kind of like a similar concept. It's an open air experience that you walk through where you see a few structures that give you a sense of Simi Valley through the, what, early 1900s right, right. through today. Mm -hmm. So much more smaller scale, but yeah. an example of a museum that isn't necessarily contained inside a bunch of walls. Yeah, something that it was of a later date in Simi Valley that I think should be added is Grandma Prisby's Bottle Village. Oh, absolutely. That's a that's a yeah. Keeper. Good luck taking that apart though I and relocating <laughs> that. So so and I think you know one of the points there is because there are so many open air museums all across the world, there probably is one close to where you live. Go online and you just Google open air museum and you might be surprised to see something cool like this even close to where you live. Good advice. You have anything, Julie? Well, I just have a quick something. Okay. So being that this museum, this open air museum has so many old buildings, it seems to follow that there would be a film production there mm. and there is film production there. The biggest thing that I could find, there's other things too, but uh, the biggest thing was the series that they do through BBC called Doctor Who. Hmm. So they do quite a bit of filming in this uh, whole museum area. Okay, I've, I've heard the name of that show. I've never seen that show, and we've stumbled across it a few times, so we might... We might have to, yeah. We yeah, see if we can dial it up on the TV. Mm -hmm. I think we would be remiss not to mention something about St. Foggen himself. So since the, the place and the museum is the namesake of St. Foggen, I looked up to see who was this individual, and he was a legendary second century Welsh bishop and saint, said to have been sent by the Pope to answer King Lucius's request for baptism and conversion to Christianity. So he is sometimes reckoned as the Apostle of Britain. And one of the interesting things about St. Fagan, and I'm not sure about the, the story about this, is he does not have a day that's observed as a feast day by the Anglicans, Catholics, or Orthodox churches. So he is recognized as a saint, but doesn't have a presently observed feast day. Okay. So there's probably more to that story. but There's, that, that's there's a, actually many saints that don't. That doesn't so he's me. one of them. Yeah. But it, he, has a, he has a museum. He does. How many a saints? Whole city. How many saints? There you he go. Has a whole city. How many saints have that? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Julie, 
we've, yes, been, we've been talking for a little while here. You hungry? It, it doesn't take me a long time to get hungry. We haven't talked about food. We should talk about food. <laughs> yes, and we had walked and walked and walked and walked quite a bit on this day that we visited St. Foggins. And they had a cafe on premises. Mm-hmm. So we walked over to the cafe. It was a little afternoon. We were hungry. But I don't think we were terribly hungry. They have an area for hot food mm-hmm. that they lay it out kind of in cafeteria style. Mm-hmm. And you go and you tell them what you want. And they just they put it on a plate and then you pay for it right there. And then you go back and there's tables set up. So that's, that's the setup there. It was a little confusing to me when we first walked in because there was a cash register mm. area. And I think that was just for drinks and coffee and stuff like that. Could have been. And then there was the food area that was next yeah. to it. So I got a little confused yeah. about re- what was what. I remember when we were trying to order that it, it seemed like we were waiting for a while. We did wait yeah. a while. We weren't like starving hungry. No. It's probably as evident by what we ended up getting, but it took us a while to get what turned out to be a fairly simple request. So we had... Yes. I think each got a bowl of soup. It was vegetable soup. Yeah, soup and bread. And it was a minted pea soup. And it was excellent. Oh, it's phenomenal. We have pea soup that we make ourselves every now and then. I think this is the first time we ever had one that had a a mint base to it as well. Well, you'll see as we go along, I think that's something common there because we had the mushy peas are also, you can have minted mushy peas. As we mentioned in some other episodes, and maybe we just kind of go to this now, we're over time since we've been back. We're trying to recreate recipes of the types of foods that we've eaten when we were in Wales. And so this is one of the meals that we will try to recreate. We haven't gotten there yet, but since we are talking about that part of our journey that we're trying to continue even after we've been back, when you go to our website, the places where we go.com, and you go to our blog, we do have since our last podcast a couple of recipes that of foods that we ate when we were in Wales that we've since recreated successfully and we've posted our versions of those recipes on the blog. So one of them that you're going to find is a recreated vegetable pot pie that we had at the pie minister. And so that was the Kevin pie. So we just made that about a week and a half ago or so. I think that turned out pretty good. Yeah, the only difference with what we did is their entire pie from top to bottom and on the sides had the crust. We were trying to keep the fat content down a little bit, so we just had the crust on top and baked it in kind of a ramekin type of dish. But real good pie, again, that's on the website. The other thing that when we had that dish at Pie Minister, it came with an accompaniment of minty mushy peas. Mm We also recreated that, and that recipe also is on the website. So there will be more to follow, but those are two brand new ones. So if you want to try some new foods, you can kind of join us on our journey through Wales and England, and we'll be you know, posting the recipes of foods that we tried as we recreate to try to match what we experienced. And some of it's complicated, and some of it will be very simple. So talking about food at the museum, so one of the things that they do try to do there when you get their food is, is they try to use ingredients that are from the area so so they really try to keep that concept of the welsh culture throughout this entire museum yeah Um, did you see that woman that came up with a basket of fresh ingredients while we were there yeah she had just fresh vegetables and herbs i think too and she walked up and gave it to maybe one of the chefs or something now now that you mentioned that i mean when we were on the grounds there were some areas where they were actually growing vegetables so 
for all I know, they might have taken it from the grounds oh, there I'm and sure. brought it up. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, so you get a fresh experience. Yeah. You get an authentic experience. There, there's also, you know, we had stumbled during the visit there. There was like a bakery house where they were baking bread. And I think we had a sample of yeah. yeah, I don't even remember what it was, but they had several different types yeah. of bread. So you've got a variety of food options there. Yeah. But we also had some other food that day also. Yes, we did, because we did have breakfast that day. Yeah. And this was not at the museum, and we got up, and you had found a place that opened relatively early. I, I think that was one of the issues we came across, is that a lot of things didn't open until like 9 a.m. So you had come across something that opened earlier than that, and it was within walking distance of our apartment. Yeah, and I think it was relatively new, because it wasn't even showing up on TripAdvisor. I think, you know, I ended up adding it to the site when, when we came back home, but a place called Cafe Rabaiotti. So I'm probably saying it wrong. Probably. It sounds very Italian. Right on the perimeter of the, the city center. So a nice little cafe, you know, nice variety of coffees, some nice breakfast options. I think I had um, scrambled eggs and salmon on top. Yeah, toast. which is another thing we should recreate. Oh, we, we're going to recreate yeah. everything. Yeah, we're okay. going to do everything. Very simple, but it was very good. So if you're looking for an early breakfast close to the city center, Cafe Rabaiati is a good option for yeah, you. And some so. good coffee, too. Yeah. It was, it was decent. Yeah. All right. So I think at the top of this, I mentioned that the original plan was we were going to spend the recommended two to three hours of the museum and then do some other stuff in the area. And by the time we got to, well, I don't know what it was, 5, 4 p.m., 5 p.m., yeah, yeah. that's when we were done with the museum. So we definitely had a case of, hey, if we had more time, because we ran out of time. So Yeah, because there was buildings we never got to see. Yeah. Um, it would have been difficult to see them because a lot of them were a good distance away from where we had ended uh, at the castle. Yeah. So, you know, there was a few things we didn't see. Yeah, so what else would you have liked to have seen in the area? Near the area, mm -hmm. there is a famous battlefield where the Battle of St. Foggins had taken place. And it was within walking distance of the museum, but it was outside of the museum. Mm. And near that battlefield was a pub that was recommended that you could go to and have a pint and or maybe a little snack or no. something. And I would have liked to have done that too. That might have been a fun thing. Was that the Plymouth Arms pub? Yes, it was, sir. That's on my notes. That's what it was. We should. We didn't get a chance to do that. That's right. We love pubs. So we didn't get a chance to do that. But if you go to St. Foggins or the village, maybe you can do that. So yeah. the Plymouth Arms Pub, make a note. And then you can let us, if you get there, then you can let us know what we missed. And a little something on the Battle of St. Foggins was it was the largest battle ever to take place in Wales. So in May of 1648, there was around 11,000, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. That fought in a battle for the village of St. Foggins. And it ended up as a really decisive victory for the parliamentarian forces who were led by the Oliver Cromwell. So the royalists kind of got pounded. Yeah. So you got all kinds of history in this area. So, you know, so, so much to see. So anything you want to leave our listeners with as far as some tips? Yeah. I, so I do have a, a few tips that I noted. Number one, as we've mentioned, talk to the docents when, when you go to this location because they have so much to offer and it's going to supplement your experience immensely. So that that's my tip number one. The second tip is don't believe what you read on the websites or TripAdvisor that you can get in and out of this place in two hours or three hours. 
planned your entire day for this place. And if you're going to the Cardiff area, I think it would be a big mistake, especially if, if you are interested in soaking up anything about Welsh history, you don't want to miss this place. It's it's a phenomenal museum. I mean, I, I think about over the past few years, we've had a chance to go to some pretty amazing museums in different parts of the world. This would yeah. be, I mean, easily on my top five. Easily. If, if not, easily. If not top, if, top yeah. three, right? Yeah. It just, very, it, very enjoyable. Yeah, that, Especially that if you love history. And then our last tip that you mentioned is if you go to the museum... It's okay to part with your fifty pence. Buy the map. Buy the map. <laughs> the, the map will come in really yes. handy. Yes. That that was a that was a mistake that we made. We sh- we should have bought that because because I think it would have made it clearer how to navigate the grounds. I mean, right. we we figured our way around, but right. there, um, there was some backtracking because yeah. we didn't quite know which way to go. It isn't a, a straightforward. You know, just follow this one path and it'll take you everywhere. There's all kinds of mm-hmm. turns and. Mm-hmm nooks and crannies and mm-hmm. ma- it's kind of a maze-like to, to a certain extent right. so so buy that and my last tip would be this is an outdoor museum wales mm. is notoriously known for weather changing quickly so look at your weather report before you go there and dress appropriately yeah so when i think about the time we spent in cardiff this was an absolute highlight, mm-hmm. and, and I'm really glad that we opted to do this and that we selected this. It was uh, just a phenomenal experience. We came back with a lot of great memories from, mm-hmm. from this particular part of the journey. So highly recommended. I highly recommend it also. Yeah. So I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. I think as we continue this series, when we talk about our trip to Wales and England, we have one more stop in the Cardiff area, and that's mm-hmm. going to wrap up Cardiff, but it's not going to wrap up wales and england we have so much more still to share with you so uh i think we'll uh say goodbye for now and we'll see you next time if you have any comments or info to share with us about travel you can write us at comments at the places where we you can also follow us on social media right now we're on twitter and instagram both at the places where we go. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you at the places where we go. See you next time. Bye now.